Welcome to Carrying Wayward, a supernatural podcast for fans who aren't ready to let go, and newcomers to this series who are ready to jump in. I'm Drew Shulman. And I'm Marie Vigourou. In this episode, we're diving into Supernatural Season 5, Episode 10, Abandon All Hope. Let's get this show on the road. I think we should remind people that our pins are still available and they're adorable. And I, I've like at this point, we've seen a lot of the tweets come in of people receiving theirs. It's wild to me. Like I've made other pins, I've made other merch, I've sold it, I've seen it show up here and there. But like this one, I'm the most proud of. <laughs> I really am proud of this project. And I'm always so proud to see it, you know, like you said, out in the wild. It's always so nice. And I believe if you order now, you should still be receiving them before the holiday. It's tight, but we're in the right frame. If this is something you want for the holidays, make sure to order it very, 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 very soon. <laughs> okay, so this episode, wow. Before we even do the recap, I sort of want to know, like, where do you stand now on the whole, like, Lucifer <laughs> isn't just evil? <laughs> I saw this question coming a mile away. Yeah, I figured. <laughs> I thought about it because I, I like, you know, obviously this is the most evil we've seen Lucifer be, but it's like that evil through like lack of action versus explicitly evil action. And I know that sounds really weird because he murdered an entire town, essentially. I'm going to need you to substantiate that. <laughs> so there's a level, there's a level of like villainy to me. And I think that's what makes villains interesting characters. It's one thing for him to be like, I killed this entire town. Why? Because I'm evil and that's an evil thing to do. He has a goal in mind, which is basically make a utopia for the other angels that he is a part of and win his way back into their graces, it seems like. That's kind of the vibe I'm getting, is it's kind of like a, let's get rid of all the humans, let's get rid of all the demons, and then it'll be just the angels, and we can all be happy like we were before. Ultimately, bad thing to be doing, the ultimate, you know, karmic balance, evil thing to do, but it's not malicious. He's not killing humans because... Ugh, humans are beneath me. It's humans are a problem and solving this problem will make things better for me and my brother. For me, the part that disturbs me the most about Lucifer in this episode is how disconnected he is from Cass, from demons who are his children, from humans. Like his total lack of concern even not even respect like because he clearly doesn't respect human life but his complete lack of concern for the well-being of anybody else but himself and that tends to set off all of my alarms in so many ways like this to me is much more scary than somebody who would be doing who would just be killing because they like killing when killing is a means to an end, again, like this whole idea of a means to an end kind of comes back. Like that for me is is something that's really scary. For me, what it comes down to is like the, the I think I need like a better word for it. There's like evil versus just like villainous action. And like the best way, and I think it almost comes across in the way that he talks about demons. He sees them as like pawns in a game. They are they are beneath him. It's the same way, like, would you bat an eye at an exterminator coming to your house to get rid of a bug problem? So here's the thing, though. I find that that kind of discourse, when you transpose it to real life, because that's sort of what we're doing, right? We're talking about fiction in a way like, okay, like how how would we navigate a, like something like this in real life, where those are very historically incendiary words? We, we've gone from being like maybe evil to yes evil but there's something about his brand of evil that isn't like malicious i look at past villains in the series like we have Lilith who's eating babies like it, it like it just seems darker and more evil than lucifer who is doing terrible things but not for the sake of the terrible thing the terrible thing is a consequence of an action he's trying to achieve honestly i find that that brand of evil that is like eating babies is so much easier to deal with. What are those sentences that just comes out of this damn show? <laughs> Definitely evil. You say not malicious. Okay, let's do that. Let's go with that. <laughs> are we ready for the recap? 
Count me down. Fantastic. Three, two, one, go. We are introduced to Crowley, who I already love. Uh, and he is making deals at a crossroads. And uh, there's like that moment where he kisses another dude. And it's like not really a big deal. And they don't, the show doesn't make a big deal out of it, which I kind of love. And then they sneak up on him and they get the drop on him. And he's all like, I've been expecting you. Here's the cult. Go kill Lucifer. I'm on your side. Bye, guys. And I'm just like, I want more of him. But okay, we'll wait. I'm sure he'll come back. We get a task force put together. And Bobby's there planning things. And the brothers are ready to go. And Joe and Ellen are there. And they're going to go get Lucifer and kill him with the cult. And everything goes to shit. Meg shows up with hellhounds. So Dean's real messed up right away. We lose Joe and Ellen in a self-sacrificial move that ultimately leads to them getting to Lucifer, finding out that the cult won't kill him. And now death is walking among us because he destroyed an entire town, humans and demons. Time! I think it's time to pour a glass so that we don't get completely depressed. <laughs> you like Usually I know what I'm getting into in an episode. So when I knew this was going to be like, oh, we're going to meet Crowley. I was like, oh, it'll be an episode about Crowley. And it was like 30 seconds of this really cool character I want to know more about. And then a ton of plot. And then an incredibly sad moment. And then nothing. I mean, not nothing, but no advance. Right before we started, I, I told you that I was basically procrastinating a little bit because I just didn't want to be talking about this episode. Not because I don't think it's a fantastic episode, but because it's so sad. We, we will get into it, especially in our story time towards the end, because, the, I mean, like, there is there is killing off a character. There is an emotional moment there. Like, there's no way to not have that. And then to do it the way they did it is just... Again, I'm, I'm going to say it from, you know, a very upfront. Joe gets fridged. We know it happens. Because we're going to go into the details of like the episode narratively today, I didn't really want to talk about that in critical time, even though I really do have thoughts. And I guess I'm saying this up front because I don't want our listeners to think that, you know, we're just going to gloss over that. There will be other opportunities to to talk about like the, the fridging of, of Joe, and we are going to take those opportunities. But today we're just going to try to get through this episode and see where it takes us. On that note, shall we dig into the long game? So like you said, we do meet Crowley and he's meeting somebody at, you know, you said the crossroads, which I really loved because it is like a modern crossroads, like a highway interchange, which I thought I, I had never noticed until watching uh, this time around. It's true. I think at some point you had mentioned it or it came up in the notes. So that's why I brought it up. Because like at first it didn't click. It just sort of seemed like under an overpass is a place where you would do shady business. And that's what he's doing. Uh, but the fact that it's an actual crossroads, I think is so much cooler. It's so much cooler. Like it's really bringing that lore into modern day, which I loved. Uh, and I know I've talked about this before, but I just want to briefly mention it again. Like this episode was filmed in 2009, uh, right after the 2008 uh, Wall Street bailout in the U.S. And Crowley's not wrong when he says that it was caused by bank incompetence. So anyway, this scene is also really interesting because like we see homophobia being weaponized by a queer person or in this case, a queer demon, Crowley, in order to humiliate a homophobe. And like, I feel like this is the first time that Supernatural uses homophobia and doesn't actually make the queer person the butt of the joke. And like, I have a lot of feelings about how this is done but I just wanted to, us to note that. I legitimately paused, rewound, and watched it again because I'm like, I'm missing the joke. Like, they're, like this is the way the show writes itself. It's not going to have this character do this and not make a joke out of it. And they don't. I, I already liked Crowley a lot, but I think that really like earned him some points in my book. I will say I've heard people say that this moment is a moment of sexual coercion. So that's kind of why I'm a little bit more lukewarm than um, than that. But yeah. Okay. I mean, I, we'll see how it plays out. Overall, again, I'm going to give the rare chance I can give the writers points for doing the right thing. Like Take I said, I'm, I'm sort of just noticing that the homophobic joke isn't like making a joke out of the queer person for once. So... We learn from Crowley that Lucifer wants to exterminate humankind and demonkind. 
And he then yells at Sam and Dean, how about you don't miss? Which I honestly think is like probably one of my favorite lines uh, or line deliveries, at least in this entire show. Oh my God. Then the entire speech he basically throws at them, this line heavily included, is just like some of the best acting the show has had in a while. Like cast excluded, this is like the best acting. Like I want Crowley cast moments because those will be like beyond funny or beyond dramatic. And I want both. <laughs> Cass says, I'm starting to feel something after drinking like five shots of like presumably hard liquor. And that line is actually a direct homage to Lord of the Rings when Legolas says, I feel something, a slight tingle in my fingers. I think it's affecting me. Another instance of the last night on Earth speech, and we're going to be talking about that a lot more later. Meg is back with the hellhounds that uh, ultimately caused Joe's demise. Again, complimenting the acting here, Dean's facial expressions and just body language when those things show up. Marvelous. Uh, So I really apologize for what I'm about to say. uh, But when Joe says that her guts are being held by an ace bandage... I will reluctantly use this time to remind you that Joe's dad died, and I quote, holding his insides in his hands on a hunt with John Winchester. And this is something that we learn in 214, Born Under a Bad Sign. I suddenly understand why you made such a big deal about the hellhounds being there because of Dean, specifically in the previous line. I'm now putting the puzzle pieces together and I want to throw this puzzle into the sun. I sort of really hate like Supernatural's like callbacks, quote unquote, because I feel like it just makes the story so circular. If you're going to do a callback like that and you're trying to make Dean seem like a better person than his father, have the difference be that she gets through it and he gets to save her because he does what John wouldn't do. Make it a learning thing, not just a callback. Sorry, continue. You know, the whole the sins of the father. Anyway, moving on. Ellen tells Dean to kick it in the ass, and that was an homage, as we know, to Kim Manners, who used to say that. Again, that one I definitely picked up, and ugh. It changes the um, the impact of that scene, I find, because it's not only... I feel like in that moment, the whole cast, crew, everybody is sort of recognizing that, you know, this show is something deeper than just the actual story. But it's also, like, even just from the character perspective, it's as a last line for a character who is leaving the show, I think just, it's like it's like a sign-off that is just... Detroit is mentioned again uh, as the place where Sam is going to say yes to Lucifer. One of these days, an episode's going to open with, like, the little, like, location tag of Detroit, and I'm going to be like, fuck. <laughs> And Meg calls Cass Clarence. We're just going to keep that in mind. Do you know why? Do you know what that's from? No. So Clarence is the guardian angel character in It's a Wonderful Life. That makes sense. Also, again, one of those like classic films I've just never seen. And like, at this point, I don't think I will, even though it's kind of like a big classic, kind of like a... Uh, Citizen Kane, like just, ugh, I know what it's about. I don't need to watch it. Just don't watch Citizen Kane. That's not worth it. But you know, it is worth it. Story time. So today our theme is hopelessness. And I'm just going to remind you that we had an episode on the theme of hope just a few weeks ago. It was 507, The Curious Case of Dean Winchester. True. And I think this episode's a great place to have this conversation because we really get to kind of track hope from start to not hope absolutely so but right before we jump into that like i know that we usually talk a little bit about what hopelessness is about but like you know i i don't think i'm teaching anything uh to anybody here when i say that hopelessness is basically like a complete loss of hope and just a quick reminder that hope comes from old english hopa uh, which means to have confidence in the future I think we can say that this episode is about entirely losing confidence or trust in what the future is going to bring to you. And really, like, part of the reason why this episode hits so hard is because the first third of the episode really gives us so much hope. 
uh, you know, even if we look at the episode critically and think, hmm, this is only episode 11, like they're not going to kill their big bad yet. Like nothing really could have prepared us for the pain of losing Joe and Ellen, especially in the way that we did. And for the even bigger blow of finding out the cult doesn't kill Lucifer that happens afterwards. It's like shockwave after shockwave of loss of hope and yeah, it's tough. Uh, so I guess I'd basically like to focus our discussion on that, like the moment or the moments where the characters experience that loss of hope in the story. Yeah, I feel like trying to do this episode the old-fashioned way or the way we usually do episodes is it, it, we wouldn't have enough time to do it all. So I think this, yeah, it makes sense to kind of go through this more like piece by piece. Right. I know we haven't done that in a while, but it, I think you're completely right. Like there's just so many characters in this episode, right? That let's, let's go at it like in terms of thirds. So like the first third, the second third, and the third third for Sam Sam. Where, where are we dividing our first chunks? What are we, what's our first segment going to be? Uh, so I would suggest maybe uh, for the first third to be like the moment where they meet Crowley, he gives the boys the cold, and then everybody parties at Bobby's house. Genuinely, like, yeah, you're right. This is this is pure hope for everyone but Crowley, I feel. Really? You don't think he's hopeful? Oh, no. I, I don't think he gave them the cult thinking it wouldn't work. I'm sure there's a part of him will, who will find out it didn't work and go, yeah, that kind of made sense, but I figured we should try it at least. I feel like Crowley turning to, like, the enemy of my enemy kind of thing. Like, turning to the two of them being like, I can't kill him. You have to kill him. And at this point, not doing anything isn't an option anymore. I'm out of options. I have run out of hope for getting out of this thing unscathed. You're my last resort. I hope this works. All right. I hadn't really thought about it that way. For me, it was more like he is... By giving the cult to the boys, he is hoping that they will actually succeed in their mission. I never really thought about the fact that he was uncertain of the outcome. The fact that it doesn't work, and Crowley seems to have this attitude of like knowing more than he's letting on, he seems to be a bit of a smartass, there's a part of him that knows this isn't a 100% guaranteed kill. Otherwise, he'd do it himself, probably even more easily than the brothers could. Maybe. I just, I get, uh, I think I'm also letting my, my knowledge of the character for later, like, tint the way that I'm looking at this. So something I kind of, I, let, I, I planted a trap for you and you escaped it. But I specifically said, like, when Crowley eventually finds, I'm assuming just from context clues, Crowley stays around for a bit. Uh, whether that's a season or more, I don't know, but I know he stays around. I figure at some point it will get back to him that it didn't work. And I could almost just picture him in the way that we've even only seen him for like a third of an episode. The response being like, damn, I really thought that would work. Like, you knew it might not work? Going like, of course it might not work. He's Lucifer. But also, even, even outside of that, it really feels like this is Crowley's like last ditch effort to save his own his skin. He has, it's a weird way to say it, like he hopes it'll work because he is now hopeless in the sense that there's no way out of this without going to the drastic levels of giving the ultimate demon-killing weapon to the two people who ultimately kill demons. So for you, a loss of hope of something working out brings hope of something else. Yes. <laughs> it's almost like it's almost like I, I like the weirdest image I can picture is almost like uh, he literally has that little like glass case on the wall with a hammer hanging from it. It's like in case of hopelessness, crack here for a little bit of extra hope. Okay, I, you know what? Like I'll take the, it. Let's take yeah, the like vending machine. You have to reach hope. rock bottom to the vending machine of hope. <laughs> Fan art, please. I think also that we're seeing the boys finally getting a big break against Lucifer. Like no matter what Crowley's intentions are, which I think we we might see a little bit differently. You know, like they have the cult. They have an angel on their side. They're like, they know where Lucifer's going to be. They're like, oh my gosh, maybe we can really do this. Like, Yeah, I think they do a good job here too, because like looking back on it, this really feels like a classic case of too good to be true. But in the moment, it really just feels like, like you said, a big break. It's hope. It's, it's we finally have a shot at this, pun intended. 
like this this is now a feasible we have a plan we can do something versus just you know playing catch up all the time yeah exactly i and i think that that is a huge motivator in the first third of the episode you know they're going in literally guns a blazing into this town but if we take it just like a quick step back here i sort of want to point out a difference between sam and dean in how they approach the hope of killing lucifer because Dean didn't want to take Sam with him because he wanted a failsafe. You know, he wasn't entirely hopeful that they would, or at least he wasn't entirely certain. He was hopeful, but he wasn't certain that they would all make it out alive if they all went. But it's Sam that convinced him otherwise. So somehow I'm sort of wondering if Sam thought that they could all make it out alive and I'm and I'm not sure if that's hope or overconfidence on his side, but it but it's there, no matter what it is. Like whether he really believed him being there would make the difference, or him being there was like the linchpin to doing this. I think it was more he needed to be there for himself to prove that he could do this. It it almost feels like he needs to like build hope back up. Like he he can't like sit there and not do something. He's crawling out of such a hopeless place after where he was left at the beginning of the season slash end of last season that he really needs to like in a weird like karmic balance kind of way like prove that he can do these things to prove that like he does in fact have hope and like that he can you know still be a good guy so you're seeing a hope for redemption redemption that's the word i'm looking for thank you so let's move on to the second third, which would be from the moment that they roll into town all the way to when Ellen actually blows up the convenience store. For me, this is really where hopelessness starts to set in or sets in altogether. And I think that that was uh, the case for most of the characters in the episode. I sort of want to talk about a specific moment where Sam is going to Dean to tell him he basically, like, he has no more hope, and Dean keep, Dean still manages to keep him on track and sort of reminds him that, like, they, have a, they still have a shot at killing Lucifer and that they have to take it. And literally, immediately afterwards, Dean reaches out to Bobby asking for help. And this is so reminiscent of Dean being vulnerable and, like, calling John all through season one for help. But the difference here is that Bobby answers... And not only does he answer, he's there, and he was even trying to reach them before, which is a completely, like, a completely different thing than what John was doing in the entirety of season one. And Bobby does for Dean what Dean just did for Sam. Like, he keeps him on track, and he asks him, like, what's next? And I would even argue that Bobby basically saves their lives in that moment by keeping Dean calm and, like, helping him figure out the next right thing to, quote, Frozen 2. It's a it's a heartbreaking song. So happy you pulled out this parallel because I think it is so vital to this conversation of hope. The parallels between Dean calling John versus calling Bobby and just how getting the response you need can truly change everything. You know, the hope was waning and they needed that like held hand or that like emotional boost. And rather than getting a voicemail and the continued being ignored, Bobby is there for them. Bobby is there to back him up. You know, it it, it seems also kind of a nice parallel or a mirror to the speech that Dean gives to Bobby a few episodes ago. Yes, exactly. Oh my gosh, I'm so glad you're bringing it up. Like, because this is where I wanted to bring it back to. So thank you for doing that. Wow, look at yeah, us. Yeah, look at us. Who'd have thunk? Who'd have thunk it? There's a there's an interesting thing that's happening in the fandom right now because of the Winchesters that is, you know, currently airing on the CW. You know, I think I think a lot of us have negative feelings towards John Winchester, but there is like to a certain degree a rehabilitation of his character that's happening right now because of this show. And I I just find that really interesting because here like just in this moment like 
when Bobby is actually actively trying to call Dean, like that is just like the polar opposite of like the silence and the abandonment that like has basically marked Dean's childhood and teenage years from John. So anyway, there you go. That was my horse. I'll get off of it. And the one, okay. So if we can sort of like switch gears here, I sort of want to talk about Joe and Ellen and hopelessness because this might be controversial, but I don't think that they're feeling hopelessness in that moment, like even as they're about to die, because Joe says, you know, it might be over for me, but you guys still have a shot at this. And then Ellen stays behind uh, to make sure that Joe's last wishes come true and to give the boys a fighting chance, basically. Right now, like obviously critically, I have a lot of issues with with this turn of events, but narratively I can, I can explain it. And the reason why I bring this up is because maybe hope and hopelessness are things that go beyond just us. Like maybe those things are, are built as groups. Maybe, maybe the hope that you have for the future of others can be greater than the one that you have for yourself or vice versa. I mean, like, let's just paint this scene again. Imagine the same tragic scene of Joe and Ellen without hope. There wouldn't be this self-sacrificial, let's save the day, let's give you a running head start, let's do this amazingly self-sacrificial act, which, again, critically, I'm with you, there's a lot to discuss there, but within universe, the idea of someone going, the only thing I can do is help somebody else and achieve our collective goal is someone who clearly has hope. And this is where sort of like, it makes me wonder like the small hope or the big hope and like, when do you decide to favor one over the other? Like I, you know, what's the difference between hoping that it's sunny tomorrow versus hoping that we manage to like stop the climate crisis? I think this goes back to something we've discussed previously and it's the like wishing versus acting. Like I hope tomorrow's sunny. I wish it's sunny tomorrow. I hope we stop climate change. There's action to be taken to actively make that happen. There's like lowercase hope and then capital H hope. And the capital H hope is that bigger, like we can make a difference. My action is part of a greater domino effect that will hopefully result in the thing I'm hoping for, you know, this was not a, I sure hope they make it. This is like, I hope the world is saved. I hope Lucifer is defeated. I hope this apocalypse is averted. And the action I'm taking, though it will take me out of the world, I'm hoping, capital H, for a better tomorrow. So then if we just very briefly go back to your analysis of Sam, in your opinion, Sam has small H hope for himself for redemption. Like, yes, it's still, I think this where it gets fuzzy a bit because that's still active. He's still trying to do something to like rekindle his hope, but it's on a very small personal scale. So I think that's where it kind of tips the scale a bit there is it's still an action, like getting involved and hoping he can do this, but that's like, uh, it's personal. It's, it's, it's a self important. So if we move on to the, third third of the episode where Sam and Dean ambush Lucifer all the way to like the burning of the photo at the end. I think this is really where hopelessness crystallizes uh, because they're, they're outside of the emergency situation where they basically had to suppress emotion to be able to stay clear headed and, and survive, right? Like that's survival was the primary goal at that point. But now that they're outside of that situation, they have a little bit more time to feel those feelings. And now that they know that the cold can't kill Lucifer, they've lost Ellen and Joe, and death is roaming the earth, like, they're not even back to square one at this point. They're basically at square, like, minus a million. And I think that, to me, that's what hopelessness feels like. It's the feeling that, like, no matter what you do, it's not going to change anything. It's not going to help, and it's just not going to get better. Yeah, there is just... This is so many levels of defeatedness. 
you know, their one free pass, total bust, the sacrifice of two very amazing people was worth basically nothing in the end. You know, they made no headway and only took losses the entire time. Uh, I mean, this this is, to, to use a really shaky metaphor, all snakes, no ladders. This is a really hard episode. <laughs> like, generally, I think the rule of thumb in any piece of media is when you have the heroic sacrifice moment, it's going to pay off. I cannot think of another piece of media where a beloved character, heck, even like a minor character or like a one-off for an episode, steps in, takes the self-sacrifice, and doesn't, you know, reward the rest of the team with something. I, genuinely, if you can think of one, I'm not going to make you do it now, because I don't, unless you have one off the top of your head, but, like, I need listeners to pitch in. Can you think of another show that has sacrificed a, like, well-beloved character and not had it pay off in some way? I honestly really can't think of one, because at the end of the day... Again, when when one of your characters like sacrifices themselves, the whole goal is because of hope and for that hope to pay off. And here there's no payoff. And that I think is like where the hopelessness gets meta because it's not only the characters that are feeling it, but it's also like the narrative that becomes ho hopeless. Like the audience feels hopeless. It's it's you've pulled the rug out from underneath Sam and Dean and us, the viewer. Because we as a viewer, like, it, I, I think it says something about a show when they're able to take a trope and turn it on its head and really have you, like, caught off guard because of it. And this is one of those rare moments. I'm not, I'm not, I don't love it, <laughs> but I am impressed that it worked. Right. I think it's also really upsetting that it's two women. Like, it's just... No, no, no. I, but I think I think you're absolutely right. You know, we talked about it very briefly at the beginning, and I think this is also another part of why it's so hard for me. Anyway, let's move on to critical time because we're running out of time. This episode was written by Ben Edlund, and Ben, my dear, we're gonna have we're gonna need to have some words, and directed by Phil Scritchia. What's in the Hunter's Journal this week? Let's crack it open. I've read about Reapers. Scary entities that, you know, shepherd our lost souls to the afterlife or to nowhere or or somewhere. No one really knows. And after all, anyone who has met a Reaper isn't exactly texting me back about it. But a very, very rare few have met one. A near-death experience. Some people leave their bodies for a moment or two and are lucky enough to find themselves back in it before the afterlife babysitter grabs them. I'm... Glad I do not have much of a memory of the moments leading up to this, but I do recall feeling fine. Like, just fine. Some well-dressed, handsome young person sat next to me, said they had seen this before. I don't think they mean an old, scraggy-looking dude, but they laughed and rested a hand on my forearm. Our eyes locked and I kind of got lost. Not like the OMG so pretty I can't even... You know, but like, they, I mean, they were rather good looking. Uh, no, I mean like a peaceful calm. A second later, I was on the ground in a massive amount of pain with some buff firefighter pressing his palms through my chest. I was sore all over, but I think what hurt most was losing that calm feeling from before. It felt like an eternity had passed since then, and truly it could not tell you how long it had been. And I ain't exaggerating. <gasps> okay. <laughs> Again, we got a lot of Reapers in this episode, and I feel like we don't really get to, like, talk about it a bit more from the, like, perspective of, like, I mean, I know it's a hunter, but, like, someone just meeting one. Right. No, but it's true. And it's interesting because nobody has seen the Reapers. It's only Cass that's seen them. We barely talked about Cass this episode, actually. His entire, the entire point of him is to not be there because he is a beacon of hope and he's gone. <gasps> oh... <laughs> Did you not put that together? Cass is light. <laughs> the sparks that fly when Cass is there, like, you know, when he's on uh, uh, his halo, the light, the lamppost. I'll just wait here then. Oh, my God. It's all <laughs> making sense. 
It's the red thread sheet. <laughs> oh my god, it all computed all at once. <laughs> I just, it was that moment of like, you put the last piece in a puzzle and you suddenly figure out what the puzzle is. And you're like, oh, I've been doing this? So that's what the hopelessness is about. Cass is not there. Okay, I, I, I funny, I, I didn't even bring it up. It just felt like such a natural piece of like, I, we should have said it. So weird story time interjection in our critical time. Well, interesting because even though, so Cass is not there, even though he was like, he's there, right? He's in the episode, but he's not in the hopelessness part. And yet deep in the hopelessness part, John Winchester is present. But this is my whole theory that Castiel and John Winchester can't coexist. But that's a whole that like that will come later. I'll talk about that theory later. That is that is that is an essay question for sure. So on the shifting of gears, what would you have to share with us this week? Well, so in an effort to try to lighten up the mood a little bit, I sort of wanted to track the thread of like the last night on Earth speeches throughout the series so far, because um, we've had a few now in, and in a very short period of time, might I add. The first is. In 410, Heaven and Hell, and that was written by Eric Kripke and Trevor Sands. And this happens uh, basically when Anna kisses Dean, and then the dialogue goes, Dean, what was that for? Anna, oh, you know, our last night on Earth, all that. Dean, you're stealing my best line. Interior Impala Night, Ready for Love by Bad Company is playing while Dean and Anna make love. In that scene, what's established is that one, Dean is familiar with the Last Night on Earth speech. Two, it's his best line. And three, it leads to sex, or sorry, to making love. To sort of like raise an eyebrow here, I wonder about the ratio of women to men hunters in this universe. Because we've only really seen like two or three women hunters in the past four seasons. So like who exactly is Dean pulling with this line? But I could also totally see this as the kind of thing where it's like, an excuse to be with a dude because it's the last night on earth. I wouldn't normally do this type thing. This is notable because it was written by Kripke. So you really can't deny that this is like full canon. Right. So the next time that we hear about it is in 503, Free to Be You and Me. And that was written by Jeremy Carver. And the dialogue here goes, Dean, do we have any chance of surviving this? Castiel, you do. Dean, so odds are you're a dead man tomorrow. Castiel, yes. Dean, well... Last night on Earth. What are your plans? Castiel, I just thought I'd sit here quietly. Dean, come on. Anything, booze, women? And this is the exchange that leads to this line. Let me tell you something. There are two things I know for certain. One, Bert and Ernie are gay. And two, you are not going to die a virgin. Not on my watch. Let's go. We know from heaven and hell that like this is a line that Dean has used in the past to have sex with the person he's saying it to, which again, like to me is a clear indication that like this is not the first time that Dean has used this line with a man. And two, Dean basically wanted to sleep with Cass in that moment. And maybe not because there is a fanfic gap there, but that's, you know, a whole other discussion. But that was the intention. And then in this episode, the writing team like really cements this with Dean's interaction with Joe. And again, like this was written by Ben Edlund. So now we have like three really big names in the writer's room who have worked on this. Kripke, Carver, Edlund. Dean, so dangerous mission tomorrow. Guess it's time to eat, drink, and, you know, make merry. Joe, are you giving me the last night on Earth speech? Dean, what? Joe, what? Dean, no. They laugh. Dean, if I was, uh, would, uh, would that work? Joe leans in for a kiss but stops at the last moment. Joe, no. Sweetheart, if this is our last night on Earth, then I'm going to spend it with a little thing I call self-respect. So here in this instance, we learn from Joe that the last night on Earth speech is like a thing in the Hunter community because she knew what it was immediately. You know what? Thank you for this because it changes my perspective on this a little bit because I felt really gross that Dean would pull that on Joe because I feel like we spent so much time getting to a point where we learned their relationship was like non-romantic and there was a lot more of like a sibling-y connection or like a respectful connection that it didn't need to become that. So this seemed so out of left field, but 
reframing it as a way to better understand Dean and kind of the like trope that exists within the Hunter community, I think makes it better that it almost kind of feels like maybe he wasn't doing it intentionally or wasn't like, it didn't start that way, but it's kind of just, it became kind of like a habit. I think it's also like, oh, well, it was a last night on earth kind of thing. Like it it didn't count. That too, a little bit. I, I Again, I still feel icky just because I kind of like the relationship they had formed up to this point. And it felt like there was a level of respect where he would not pull that on her. Do you think that there's a, a universe in which she would agree? I could see it existing. I, I definitely think the two of them have have a potential to be compatible in that way. And it just didn't go that way in this universe. But I guess what I'm saying is like, as a last night on Earth speech kind of thing. Like, I don't see Joe being like, oh, yes, let's let's go to your car kind of thing. No, because I, I think Joe agrees with me in the way that she views the relationship with Dean now. No, she she wouldn't. I don't think she would. And I think even the fact that they actually did kiss at the end of all this, like, almost ruins that more to me. But, like, that's a whole other bucket of worms. Hold on. This is also kind of where, because I saw the kiss at the end as more of, like, a an acknowledgement exactly of what you just said, that, like, in another life, this could have worked, but it just wasn't meant to be in this particular moment in time. That makes that pill a bit easier to swallow. So I'm going to choose to go with that and say thank you. Well, you're very welcome. And so, but to kind of come back to what we were saying, if Dean, you know, if we if we know that Joe is always going to say no to this particular particular proposal at this particular moment, right? In this particular way, do we think that Dean did it on purpose in order to get shut down? Because he knew it wasn't going to happen? Again, I like this. It makes it easier to handle this whole situation. Yes, okay, I like that. I'm not answering the question. I'm just saying I like that thought process. If I'm going to be honest, like, you know, Cass didn't shut him down. (laughs) (laughs) Again, we've discussed Speechless. Oh my gosh, I don't think that's ever happened. (laughs) (laughs) We've discussed that fanfic gap before and how I am very on board with it. Let's go have a look at what uh, we have from our community this week. Yes, please. This week, we have a message from José. And before we read it to you, we want to remind you to send us a three-minute voicemail. To respond to anything that we discussed today, you can use the recording app on your phone and just email us the recording at carryingwayward at gmail.com. And we also want to remind you that Drew and I are going to be answering the question, why do you think that Sam, Dean, and Bobby burned the picture at the end of the episode? For our Roadhouse patrons and coffee supporters on our Impala Talk. So here is the letter from José. Hello, lovely Carrying Wayward team. I wanted to talk about Sam's fantasy in the episode, Sex and Violence. I tried to record my thoughts, but I literally could not articulate the words. It is sometimes harder to sound coherent in your second language. Hence this email. I understand and I respect that. My, I, my ramblings in French are barely comprehensible sometimes. <laughs> you both had interesting takes on Sam's fantasies in the episode as a whole, but neither of you really touched upon what desire the siren saw in Sam to be able to control him. I never really got that part of the story. When Drew talked about the violence part of the fantasies in the episode, it made more sense to me. Sam, early season Sam anyway, was always full of rage or anger, and we know he'd wanted to kill Dean at least once before in Asylum. Did the siren just bring that desire to the surface? But at the same time, Sam just went through a really rough patch while Dean was in hell, saying he tried everything to bring his brother back. Why would he want to kill him just a couple of months after getting him back? And then I thought of his chosen one complex. What if he really wanted to be the one saving Dean, the one to bring him back to life, enough to send him back to hell again, or at least into the veil? Do any of you have thoughts on that? I always love your discussions. Keep up the good work, Josie. That is a very dark take on Sam's desires. And I think that what is even darker for me is that I can't really find a way to rebut that. (laughs) sorry no but i'm sort of thinking about it i'll be very honest while reading this i had that same moment of like oh shit well mary's super good at this she'll have a a reasonable explanation to make sense of this all right then (laughs) let's unpack that a little bit i wish that this episode was fresher in my mind uh especially 
the very specific chain of events that happens from the moment that Sam walks into the hotel, the motel room and like makes all of these like sexual innuendos about Dean and the siren all the way to like the siren getting killed like that. Like I would say like three to four minutes of the episode, because I think, I think that you're right. And like you talked about like the desire for violence as being one of the, the desires that the siren like awakens in people like for, because the siren seems to awaken a desire for sex and a desire for violence. And I think that for Dean, it started with the desire for sex and then went to violence. Uh, but for Sam, it seems like it went directly for violence. Maybe because that's what's most accessible to Sam at the moment. Like he, like Jose mentioned, like in the first few seasons of this of the series, Sam harbors a lot of anger and has to manage a lot of anger, a lot of rage, which is completely understandable considering everything that he's been through, right? But I think maybe those feelings were just more accessible than those of like sensual and sexual desire in particular, because this is something that he already had with Ruby, you know, the sex without attachment. So I don't know. I think, I think that you're, you know, I sort of sidestepped the whole, like maybe he wanted to kill Dean because he wanted to be chosen so badly, because to me, that is probably like the darkest interpretation of Sam that I can imagine. I don't really want to go into it, but I think it's absolutely brilliant. Like I said, I can't, I can't really think of a way to, to rebut that at the moment. So thank you so much for bringing that to my attention. Mary, you're, you're thinking through it out loud. Help me kind of come to this point. I think it leans on two things. One is, I've already said in the past that I have a reading of Sam that is a little bit aromantic, asexual. And I think when it comes to someone who doesn't have one of those two desires between sex and violence, one is definitely going to be more hypersensitive when being, you know, brought to the forefront by a demon whose specific thing is to bring forward those two desires. It's kind of like, I like to use a really cheap metaphor. Imagine water flowing through two doors and you shut one door. How much more water is going to come through the second door all of a sudden because there's nowhere else for it to go. But also, I think there's this weird reading of Sam I've kind of had but never really admitted I, I don't want to use the clinical term here, but I think there's kind of like that sociopathness to him. I, I think back to uh, the first, the trickster episode when he's without Dean the first time and how like desperate he gets and how he gets kind of like cold and calculated and like very good at his like job. And I think that comes from a place of like a clinical interest on like the more educational side of like killing. And I know that sounds really dark. I'm trying to like kind of think more like Dexter in a bit, like the, the idea of like a killer who's cold and calculated, but like not evil per se again, to go back to my, my Lucifer. Yeah. I feel like you're making a really interesting parallel with Lucifer here, where you're talking about Lucifer as not being malicious. And yet, yet interestingly from, from your tone of voice and like your nonverbal clues, I guess I'm sort of, wondering who you think is like more evil sam or lucifer because <laughs> like it's not clear to me at the moment <laughs> lucifer and sam and i i think this is what the show's trying to get at almost here and i think i'm doing it for them are like two sides of a coin they have a lot in common but one is able to control it and not let it go and not just like i i weirdly imagine a darker universe where sam was raised the way dean was raised like without like if there was no Dean and he was raised the way Dean was, how Sam would have turned out and like would have been that kid who like caught animals and learned to skin them kind of thing. Well, remember Max? There you go. Well, so this this is a recurring conversation at this point, I guess. But like, and this is sort of where I get defensive of Sam because Sam is capable of attachment. He is capable of emotion. Because I think that the biggest threat to Sam would be isolation, uh, social, emotional, and all that stuff. And thanks to Dean, he doesn't go there. And maybe, maybe that's what the siren saw in him, that Dean was what kept him from going over the edge. From going over the edge. I think that's a more like succinct, logical version of my reading, honestly. So thank you. But that's basically what I was trying to get at. Like without like, 
I feel like I was making an example that was way too far left field and you reined it in. So thank you. You're welcome. Wow, that was a hell of a message. (laughs) Are we ready to hear about a reflection and call to action? Let's do it. Given the incredible, dark, bleak, and sheer hopelessness of this episode, I really found it hard to connect to. And I'm sure like we've all felt hopeless, we've all felt like down and defeated, but I feel like they hit a level that was so removed that I couldn't connect to it. I kind of looked at Joe and Ellen a bit more. And while I've clearly never had to face what they'd had to face and literally turn to sacrifice, but you know, a reminder to myself that like you need to just sort of like buck up and be brave and face challenges and adversity. Like I'll be incredibly transparent for our listeners with this huge move I'm undertaking. A big part of it has been finding a new job. And that's just been like the most demoralizing thing to go from like six months ago when every single job I applied for was like begging me to come work for them to sending my resume and CV to like 80 different applications and hearing back from like two that just ghosted me. Like I incredibly less dangerous than Invisible Hellhounds, but a very demoralizing thing. And while since writing this, things have turned around, I all I could do was just buck up, face it, and keep marching forward and face the challenge ahead of me. So that was was my call to action and will continue to be my call to action. Yeah, I honestly I completely agree with you. This is sort of like where I'm going with this. Like if I'm if I'm thinking about the direct call to action from this episode, it's basically to not watch this episode again. <laughs> you know, it, it does. It, I posted a picture of myself like just bawling on Twitter because I, I was it's really sad. But if I do go a little bit deeper than that, because I think that it merits it. This is sort of a reminder for me that in, in those moments of hopelessness that we all experience, but particularly for me, I think, because, you know, this is a personal call to action to sort of focus on like the next thing or again, like the next right thing, which again, I'm bringing up again because it's a song that like is so meaningful to me because like when, when uh, the spicy sads start hitting um the next right thing is is all you can do you've been listening to carrying wayward a supernatural podcast produced by rochelle castellano hosted by drew shulman and myself marie Viguru. thank you to our bunker patrons katira michelle and l for their generous support this week we'd like to thank jose for her message follow us on twitter instagram tiktok and youtube using at carrying wayward and leave us a rating and review on your podcast service of choice. And don't forget to join our Coffee or Patreon for perks and extra content. You can use the link in all of our social media bios or go directly to carryingwayward.com. Carry on our wayward friends. In this episode, we're diving into Supernatural Season 5. I hesitated on that as if I wasn't sure it was Supernatural. <laughs> What are you doing? What are you doing, Munchkin? You're so silly.